Our second lesson is also taken from the Old Testament. It is taken from the second book of Samuel, chapter 11. I'm reading parts of uh, chapter 11, verses 1 through 27. And it came to pass after the year was expired at the time when kings go forth to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. And it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed and he walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired after the woman and one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her and she came in unto him and he lay with her. And she returned unto her own house. And the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am with child. And David sent to Joab saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah was coming to him, David demanded of him how Joab did and how the people did and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, Go down to thy house and wash thy feet. And Uriah departed out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king's table. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and he went not down to his own house. And when they had told David, saying, Uriah went not down to his own house, David said unto Uriah, Camest thou not from thy journey? Why then didst thou not go to thine own house? And Uriah said unto David, the ark and Israel and Judah abide in tents. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open field. Shall I then go into my own house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As thou livest and as thy soul liveth, I will not do this thing. And David said to Uriah, Wait here today also and tomorrow I will let thee depart. And so Uriah abode in Jerusalem that day and the morrow. And when David had called him, he made him to eat and to drink before him, and he made him drunk. And at even he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he would not go to his own home. And it came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab, and he sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest part of the battle and retire from him that he may be smitten and die. And it came to pass when Joab observed the city that he assigned Uriah unto a place where he knew that valiant men were. And the men of the city went out and fought with Joab and there fell some of the people of the servants of David and Uriah the Hittite died also. So the messenger came from Joab and showed David all that Joab had told him. The messenger said unto David, Surely the men prevailed against us and came out unto us in the field, and we were upon them in the evening unto the entering in of the gate. And the shooters shot from off the wall upon thy servants, and some of the king's soldiers be dead, and thy servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. 
Then David said unto the messenger, Thus shalt thou say unto Joab, Let not this thing displease thee, for the sword devoureth one as well as another. Make the battle stronger against the city and overthrow it. Encourage thou him. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah her husband was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when the morning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife and bare him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord, and the Lord sent Nathan unto David. Amen. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. <coughs> For the last five Sundays, we have been thinking together in the Montreat Church regarding some Bible characters and the messages that come to us from their lives. Some weeks ago, we thought about John the Baptist, that fearless prophet of God who preceded the Lord Jesus Christ and made the way before him. We saw in him a great sense of consciousness before God a great sense of courage that took him into the presence of Herod to denounce his sin, and a man of whom Jesus said that there had never been born of women a greater than John the Baptist. And then because John the Baptist prefigured one whose name was Elijah in the Old Testament, was prefigured by one named Elijah in the Old Testament, we saw him. And we saw how Elijah was a fearless, towering, courageous prophet of God, who stood out against the sins of his own nation, against God, his own king, when his king had gone wrong. And then we saw the abominable no-man, the 401st prophet, a little-known man by the name of Micaiah, who had the great courage and the audacity in the presence of 400 false prophets to denounce them as liars and violation of all ministerial ethics and to preach to the king a word from God. He wound up in prison, but God vindicated the prophetic word which Micaiah uttered. And then there was an unknown prophet that we thought about last Sunday, a man who cautioned us not to get so busy here and there about so many things that we forget the one thing which is most important that there is great danger to be found when we become so busy that we do not sort out our priorities and rethink them and seek first the kingdom of God. And then today, I want to speak about Nathan, the chaplain to the king. It's a very difficult task for a gospel preacher to stand in the presence of a king. Those who stand in the presence of people in great authority are expected to abide by certain rules of conduct. They're expected never to embarrass their famous auditor by saying anything that might be offensive in his presence. They're expected to live by carefully regulated rules as people of courts and great folk are wont to do. 
Nathan had prophesied great things concerning David. And earlier passages in the second book of Samuel tell us about some of those wonderful things that he had to say about David. But Nathan was also a prophet of God, and because he was a prophet of God, he did not shun to declare the whole counsel of God, even though it was a decidedly unpopular thing for him to do. The sin of David and Bathsheba must seem very dull to a great many people today in the limp moral standards by which we live and the gray moral scene out there and the people who tell us that there are no moral absolutes. But for those who know God and for those who reckon that one day they must give an accounting of themselves to God, for those who have heard the voice of God thunder at Sinai, thou shalt not commit adultery, for those who have heard the voice of God thunder, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. For those who have heard the voice of God say, thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt bear. For we see David at a time when kings go forth to battle, remaining at home in Jerusalem, when normally he would have been in the field. It is usually pointed out at this time in his life, he was about 50. The sins of middle age are often spoken of here. There are sins of youth, there are sins of old age, there are sins of middle age. You know, I got to be 41 last year, and I got to thinking, what's middle age? Will I live to be 82? I must be middle age. I don't think I'll live to be 82. So this is probably the middle. And you know what happens when you early start out, you have great ideals. And you live close to those ideals. Then when you get older and you start looking toward the sunset and you begin to think about the inevitable summons that comes to us all, there are great ideals that flourish again in our minds and hearts. But during the middle years, these ideals sometimes grow cold. And judgment seems far away. And we become bored. And boredom is always a prelude to sin. It's a real sin to be bored. It always leads to trouble. David did not go forth to battle, but he stayed behind in Jerusalem. And it came to pass in an evening tide that he rose from off his bed and he walked and he saw a woman who was evidently washing herself with some lack of modesty at least. And he saw her. She probably was a well-known beauty. David sent some messengers, and he said, Who is this woman? And they said, Don't you know about her? That's Uriah's wife. Uriah the Hittite. Uriah means the light of Jehovah, a Hittite who had come to a knowledge of God. And David had gotten to believe all the great things that had been said about him, and that's always a dangerous thing to do, to begin to believe all the words of praise that come to your ears. You better stop and think about who's speaking the words of praise and what their motives are. David thought as king, I can do no wrong. Go tell Uriah, wife Bathsheba I'd like to see her and they bring Uriah's wife Bathsheba and he forgets the commandment of God 
And when the hot blood courses through his veins and lust is there, he gives expression to his lust. This is the first of his sins. And then she sends word to him and says, I am with child. David realizes that his sin cannot be kept back now, and so he's got to cover it. And so he sends to Joab, an unscrupulous general, and he says to Joab, send Uriah home. And Uriah comes home, and David, with sickly hypocrisy, asks him how the battle goes and how it fares with Joab. And then he gives him a lot of food and wine from his table and says, now go home. See your wife. But you know, I suspect that as many servants as David had, that word had gotten out that he had been paying attention to Bathsheba and that she had indeed been in the king's apartment. And probably this word had been known to Uriah. And Uriah said to David, your soldiers are out there in the field. You're here at home taking it easy, in effect. But your soldiers are out there in the field. And the ark of God is there. And I'm not going to my home. And David began to think, what can I do? I'll have to think up something else. One sin always leads to another sin. So David thought, I know what to do. I'll invite him to eat with me. He invited him to eat with him, and he got him drunk. I don't know how many times I have had businessmen tell me about going on a trip to New York or to Chicago, how they were relaxing just before dinner in the bar, and they had a few, and there was a lonely woman there in the bar, and they wound up sleeping with her that night. That's what alcohol will do to you. It depresses the central nervous system. That's why you talk funny. That's why you walk funny. That's why your judgment is impaired. It's not a sexual stimulant, but it depresses your ability to make judgment. Not long ago, I had to take a man over to jail, Nashville. I came in, and there was a man who was drunk, and barefooted, and he was sitting in a chair by a highway patrolman. And the highway patrol, he was complaining to the highway patrolman and to all of us who were standing around, he said, he got me out of bed and brought me here. And the highway patrolman said, I didn't get him out of bed, but I woke him up. He said he was parked in the middle of the road, right on the line that goes down the middle of the road, sound asleep over the steering wheel. He said, I woke him up and I brought him here. And the drunk was saying, he took me out of bed and brought me here. His judgment was drastically impaired. And this, you know, there used to be a time back when the church had a little courage about such things in which they denounced the sins of drunkenness. But that's not popular anymore. We're rich and affluent like David and we don't have to do it anymore. And most of our elders and deacons drink, so we're going to play it the way they want it. We lose a prophetic note when we do. We need to warn against the sin of drunkenness. Well, this led to the next sin. But you know, David tried to get Uriah drunk, but Uriah didn't get so drunk that he went home. 
And when that didn't work, David did the most damnable thing he ever did in his entire life. David called in a secretary and said, I want to give some orders to Joab. Take Uriah and set him in the forefront of the battle. Put him at the hottest place in the battle. And then pull the troops back away from him. And let him be smitten so that he may die. And when it was written, he folded it. said, Uriah, take this and give it to Joab. And Uriah, the faithful servant of King David, took his own death warrant back in his hand and gave it to Joab. And Joab put him in the forefront of the battle. And Uriah was killed. And Joab wrote his report and sent it to David. And after seven full days of mourning for her husband, Bathsheba married David. Not much of a wait. And then you know this old King James Version of the Bible does some tremendous things with words. It sums up sometimes some wonderful things in just a sentence. But, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Right and wrong are words that have no meaning apart from God. Any preacher who tells you that there are not moral absolutes is a liar. And don't you ever forget that you heard one preacher that told you that. And if you want to write it down on a bulletin and go quote it to somebody in the seminary, I'll say it again. He is a liar, and he'll lead you to hell. And you better watch out for him. And you hear him a lot. Well, there are moral absolutes because there is God, and God is transcendent. And what he says is to be taken seriously. It's not put forward as a basis of negotiation. You can accept it or you can reject it, but you can't modify it because who you deal with in the Bible is God. Well, here comes a word from God. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord, and the Lord sent Nathan unto David. The Lord sent Nathan. You wouldn't have been reading the 51st Psalm a while ago if it hadn't been for Nathan. And Nathan puts all of those of us who try to preach sermons like this to shame. Nathan was one of the greatest of all of the preachers who ever lived. There was no slobbing word that he took to the pulpit with him. No hurried extemporaneous discourse. But Nathan had fasted and prayed before God. And the Spirit of God was upon him when he went into David's presence that day. And such a word as he spoke could only be rivaled by some matchless parable that our Lord Jesus himself should tell. The Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him, and he spoke this word. There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb 
which he had bought and nourished up, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drink of his own cup. It was to him as a child. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared not to take of his own flock and of his own herd to kill for the wayfaring man. But he took the poor man's lamb and killed it for the visitor who had come to see him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall die. And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel. I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives. I gave thee the house of Israel in Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have given thee that much more again. Why hast thou done this evil in the sight of God? Thou hast slain Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the children of Ammon. And thou hast taken his wife to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house. I will take away thy wives from before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with them in the sight of this son. What you have done has been done secretly. What I will do will be done before all of Israel. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against God. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Now that's the sermon. Hugh Latimer was a contemporary of Martin Luther. He was born about the same time and died about the same time, only lived in England. And Hugh Latimer also had the responsibility of being a chaplain to a king, a king whose name was Henry VIII. Maybe you saw the television series about the six wives of Henry VIII. Well, Hugh Latimer was a man of rare courage and ultimately became a martyr for his faith in Jesus Christ. And on one occasion, Hugh Latimer had given a sermon in the chapel of, that the king had, which greatly offended King Henry VIII. And King Henry VIII was so enraged by what Latimer had said that when the service had concluded, he demanded of Latimer an apology publicly for what he had said. However, on the next Sunday, when all of the courtiers and the king's entourage had gathered and King Henry VIII was there and the music had been played and it was time for the sermon, Hugh Latimer walked toward the pulpit. And as he walked toward the pulpit, he began to say some words. He said to himself out loud, Hugh Latimer, dost thou know before whom thou art this day to speak? Yes, 
before the high and mighty monarch, the king's most excellent majesty, who can take away thy life if thou dost defend him. Therefore take heed, Hugh, that thou speaks not a word that shall displease him. But then, Hugh, consider well who has sent thee and to whom thou shalt go, even the great and the mighty God who has the power to cast thy soul into hell. Therefore take care, Hugh Latimer, that thou dost deliver the message faithfully. Whereupon Hugh Latimer repeated word for word the sermon that he had preached the previous Sunday. When the sermon was over, King Henry VIII demanded to see him. He asked him how he could be so bold as to offend him in this manner. And Hugh Latimer told him that he had a commission from God to preach God's word. And he would do it. That he had a conscience. And God had told him what to say and he would say what God told him regardless of what the king did. Henry VIII rose from the chair in which he was sitting and put his arms around Hugh Latimer and said, Blessed be God that I have one honest man at court. After Henry VIII had died, and during the reign of Bloody Mary, it was this same Hugh Latimer who was burned at the stake and before he was burned, you remember his immortal words to Ridley? He said, Master Ridley, be brave and play the part of a man. We shall this day, by God's grace, light such a fire in England as never shall be put out. And he did. It took courage for Nathan to do what he did. But you saw what happened as a result of it. David immediately, immediately said, I have sinned against God. He did not have Nathan put to death as Herod had done. He did not go away sullen and angry as Ahab had done with Micaiah. But he quickly admitted his sin. And when he admitted his sin, he found that there was forgiveness for his sin. Although there were results of that sin which would remain with him to his dying day. One of his own sons rebelled against him. One of his sons killed one of his brothers. The sword never departed from his house. And the child that had been conceived in this way died as punishment inflicted by God upon David because he had blasphemed the name of God. But the lesson for us to remember is that with God there is forgiveness. If God could forgive David, he can forgive me. If the Bible could say of David he was a man after God's own heart, 
And if it was a word of praise for Jesus that he was called the son of David, then David's psalm can become my psalm too. And on a number of occasions, with those who have committed adultery, I have had them kneel in the study and pray with me those matchless words from the 51st Psalm. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. Wash me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Do you see the beauty of that great psalm? When you read it, think about David and think about Nathan, that preacher of God's truth who led him to that place. And then there are many places in the New Testament, such as 1 John 1 and 9, that tell us that if we are faithful to confess our sins, he is just to cleanse us from our sins and from all unrighteousness. Read again the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. And see that boy who recognized his sin and started home to God. And the only time, to my knowledge, that the Bible ever pictures God in a hurry is when that father of that son got up and ran to meet the penitent who was coming back. And if you have sinned against God, God is running toward you right now. God is running toward you in Jesus with hands that have had nails driven through them and a side that has been riven by a spear and a body that has been raised again from the dead for your justification and a cup that has been shed for the remission of your sins. And all of this is saying that God loves you like this and he will forgive you, accept his forgiveness and believe it. A murderer by the name of Saul of Tarsus found that forgiveness on the road to Damascus from that Jesus who offers complete pardon and forgiveness and he became that great apostle of grace. That's the answer to our guilt. It's grace. Grace from God. Worship before him in contemplation of what he has done for us, of that great forgiveness which he has wrought for us. I love to say the Apostles' Creed. And I always say with great and hearty feeling. I believe in the forgiveness of sin. Do you believe in the forgiveness of sin? Sin is serious business. It cost God the death of his son on the cross. That's why I rage against people who make light of it. But it also brings to us grace. Grace that is greater than all our sins. And in the light of that love and grace, we can be what he wants us to be. We can know the joy of that repentant David who said, Create within me a clean heart, O God, and renew 
a right spirit within me. That's the greatest need of the church today. Create within me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cyrus was a great king of Persia. He spared the life of the queen of Armenia at the intercession of her husband who offered to die in her stead. And when she was asked by King Cyrus what she thought of the splendors of his court with all of the gorgeously apparelled people that were there and the white marble and the gold and the statuary, she made a memorable reply. She said, I have not even noticed them at all. I have been absorbed in looking into the face of the one who loved me and pleaded for my life. Let us look into the face of our Savior and love him and worship him for what he has done in forgiving our sins. Let us stand in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we bless thee that what you have painted for us in Holy Scripture is not a set of plaster of Paris saints, but of real men and women who have known lust and defeat and despair and anger and violence and all of those things that make up the society in which we live today. And we thank thee that thou hast shown us through the history of their lives the story of thy love and grace and reaching into the gutter and picking up jewels so reached down to us in Montreat and reach to all of those who listen to us through the medium of radio and every heart that seeks of thee the forgiveness of sins this day. Grant that they may know the joy of total and complete forgiveness. And may they look into the blessed eyes of their Savior, knowing that joy and that peace which he can bring and that new heart and new life which he can create, and the way that he can make things what they ought to be. Oh, let that carpenter be a mender of broken lives, and let him make over many a heart this day. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit our keeper and our guide, be and abide with you all, both now and forevermore.